ready recollection and things like that because my memory is horrible. I think many years ago I prayed God for the wisdom of an old man. And he's, I said, give me the mind of an old man. And he said, congratulations, you can't remember anything. Exactly, exactly. We'll talk about that later, though. We'll get into that when we get to Matthew 7 in about an hour. Like I said, we're in Daniel. And so uh, we've been going through the major prophets in sort of our series, Understanding the Bible. And I don't... Yeah, I'm a few slides off here. Hold on. Thought I was at the right spot. That'll be fine. We were going through Daniel, and because Daniel was a little bit longer, or a little bit shorter, I said we'll get to take a little bit of time, and the, the chapters are easy to kind of look at and break down a little bit more than some of the longer texts and some of the other prophets. And so we'll finish up going through Daniel, and then I'll do what I've said we would do, is we'll look at a couple different passages from the major prophets, and we'll just take some time to study those. We might only get through one passage this week. We might do a couple. I haven't totally figured out how many I want to do or... Which ones I'm going to go to first. We'll see how adventurous we're feeling by the time we get done with Daniel. But we'll do that for this week and next week. We'll study just some example passages from the major prophets. And then we will close the book on that section and move on to the poetry, the psalms, the wisdom literature, whatever you want to call it. So we're moving quickly through all this. So Daniel, we were talking about Daniel 1 through 6. And we mentioned when we started Daniel that Daniel 1 through 6 has a lot of the sort of adventures and the narratives and the stories from Daniel's life. And then Daniel 9 through 12 is all the prophecies of Daniel. In most of the major prophets, it's kind of intermingled. Like when we looked at Jeremiah, Jeremiah would tell you a story from Jeremiah's life, and then it would talk about some of his prophecies, and it was all kind of intermixed together in the book of Jeremiah. Daniel, it's nice and neat. First half of Daniel, all the stories about Daniel's life. Second half of Daniel, all the prophecies from Daniel's life. Daniel is also a little bit unusual you might remember when we were talking about him that he, he doesn't necessarily receive the word quite the way in the mechanism that it seems like Isaiah and Jeremiah do. Isaiah and Jeremiah often seem to be reciting something that was told to them. Um, you know, they say, the Lord has said this, the Lord has said this. Daniel, there's a lot of prophecy through dreams, which is a little bit different. Um, in fact, in many cases, he is explaining the dreams of the king, which is especially odd because the king is not a godly person most of the time. And so we don't, it's just a little bit different. But Daniel brings the word of the God to these ungodly people through this gift of, of prophetic interpretation that God has given him. So since Daniel is so nicely cut in half, think, yes, good, got those changed. We talked about the first six chapters. I want to talk a little bit about some of the bigger pictures of the next few chapters and some of the themes and some of the big ideas of Daniel. And then when we get to the end, we'll talk about uh, some of the, what I would call, apocalyptic literature that is in the second half of Daniel because that, I think, if we got to right now, would take us a long time, and I don't want to spend quite all whole morning talking about it, but we will mention it. We will try and maybe explain it or suggest how we can understand it before we get done. So... As we look at the themes in the book of Daniel, a big one, and we've seen this as we've been studying all of the prophets, is God's sovereignty. And I explained this word, I, explained, I said that wrong, God's sovereignty. I always struggle with that word. But sovereignty is just his, his power and his control over events. And so that God is all-powerful and God is in control. He, he, he sets up and removes kings. If someone could read for us Daniel 4, verse 34 through 37. Daniel 4, verse 
And one of y'all will definitely have to read it because I was wandering around greeting people and I have abandoned my Bible somewhere. I'll have to find it later. But if someone could read for us Daniel 4, verse 34 through 37. Quite a long four verses. Thank you. I appreciate you braving that for us. So you'll notice in that passage you read a couple things about it. Number one, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar is speaking, but it's quite obvious that this has been revealed to him. When we looked at this passage last week, this was the event where he was driven out to the wilderness because he spoke against the Lord. And when he came back and blessed the Lord, he, he uses this phrase that my reason returned to me, my sanity returned to me, my, his, his faculties returned to him. Because he began praising the name of the Lord. And he, he speaks this sort of this prophetic language, this praise language for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures for generation to generation. And so he says that it is, it is really God who is in control of all things. Something else we'll see in Daniel, especially as we get to some of those apocalyptic visions at the end of the book, is that all of the kingdoms of the world will eventually come to an end. You might remember that we talked about the great statue, uh, the great statue that had there would be the kingdom of iron and the kingdom of clay and the kingdom of gold. And, and that Daniel interpreted to Nebuchadnezzar all the historical kingdoms that this was talking about, all the events that would take place and what this meant. But he also mentions then and then again later in the book in chapter 7 that, you know, all these kingdoms that will come to pass, they will eventually all be done away with because the Lord will establish a kingdom and when the Lord establishes his kingdom, it will never pass away. Something I love about what we've been doing in our series is kind of going through the entire Bible. We, we're not studying every chapter and every verse of the entire Bible, but we're getting at least some of the highlights, some of the big portions. You've hopefully heard this phrase, this idea of the Lord's kingdom never passing away for a while now. It's in the Kings, it's in the Chronicles, it's in a lot of the prophets. It goes back to Samuel, it goes back to the covenant with David. It's, God has been talking about this thing that he is going to do for a long time. And so Daniel stands in a long line of prophets who testifies to this coming kingdom that the Lord will establish and that his kingdom will never pass away. Another big lesson from, from Daniel is faithfulness. We talked about this a little bit last week and we just talked about the, the scenario Daniel finds himself in. Because he's a captive, he's in exile, he is a Jewish person living in a Babylonian palace. He's a servant to the king. And we talked about how for Daniel and then Shadrach and Benny, his friends, the major lesson of a lot of their stories is faithfulness even in times of loneliness. You could almost say, even when no one else around you seems to be obedient to God, this is how you can serve God. And then Daniel also begins to prophesy towards the end of his book. If someone reads for us Daniel 12, 
verse 1 through 3. Daniel 12, 1 through 3. And go ahead and read verse 3, please. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So for starters, it's probably a little bit different than we were reading about the great statue in the fiery furnace, right? This is a little bit different language. A lot going on in those sections. We'll talk about. We'll take a second to talk about this. He says there will be a time of trouble such as there has never been, but then your people will be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book. Those who are asleep will awake, and then, of course, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so we've, we've talked about this for a while, too, that Daniel begins to prophesy about Ezekiel. We saw this a little bit in Ezekiel. They begin to prophesy about this idea of resurrection. Which, of course, you and I know, we talk about it as heaven and hell. That there will be a judgment. That those who are dead shall... Paul says, those who are dead in Christ shall rise and they will come with us into the skies. That we will be judged and some will go into everlasting life and some into everlasting shame and contempt. And so Daniel says this because in the stories of Daniel's life, he's talking about being faithful. He's talking about not worshiping the gods, the false gods, that these Babylonian powers, the kings, the princes, and just all of society worship these Babylonian gods. Daniel did not. Why? When you look at his friends, and if you're concerned with where you're going to get in this life and how your life on this earth is going to end, the obvious choice for Daniel is just, look, just, just bow down, say the words, and don't get thrown into the fiery furnace. Right? It's really not that hard. Just bow down, say the words, don't get thrown into the fiery furnace. But Daniel is saying, I'm not living for this life. There's going to come a time where we will be judged, where there will be a deliverance like there has never been before, where everyone who has asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some will be sent to everlasting life, and some will be to everlasting contempt. And he says, because of that, I must remain faithful in this life. And so faithfulness is a big, big message in the book of Daniel, that, that those who uh, persevere through trials, through difficulties of this life, will be rewarded in the next. I want to take a second... Because we mentioned a little bit in Ezekiel how Ezekiel shares some language with Revelation. Daniel says some language with Revelation. One of the big reasons for that is at the time Revelation was written, there was already beginning this wave of very strong persecution against Christianity. Um, obviously, you, we know that Jesus was crucified. But the, really, when the church started, there was not immediately this strong reaction from the state. I mean, if you had asked the, the Roman officials or even the Jewish officials, what are you going to do about these Christians? They'd be like, what are Christians? You know, they didn't even know what was going on. But as the church gained momentum, as the church grew, and as the church started being perceived as a social threat, which is a big, big deal, that's when the powers that be said, hold on, we need to do something about this. And so by the time John is writing Revelation, there arose this great persecution against the church that was very state-led. And so John writes... A lot of the same words that Ezekiel and Daniel wrote when the God's people were in captivity before. And he says, remember the time where your people were, were captured, where they were in exile, where Jerusalem had been destroyed, where they were surrounded on all sides by enemies who wanted them to worship foreign gods. And what John is doing is he's saying, if you remember this time of Israel's history, 
If you remember when, when you were in exile, remember when Jerusalem fell, remember the words of the prophet Ezekiel, remember the words of the prophet Daniel, and how he spoke to you saying to remain faithful to the end because there will be a crown of life or a flake of fire. And so when you read Revelation, if you read Daniel, you see a lot of overlap in their language, a lot of similarity. And it's because for God's people at those times, God's people were going through very similar things. And so this language very strongly resonated with them. And so we see these very beautiful portraits of the reward for those who remain faithful, right? He's trying to encourage them. He's saying, look, look how beautiful it's going to be. Yes, this is terrible now. Yes, this is grueling now. And yes, it seems harsh and scary now. But there is a wonderful, wonderful reward for those who persevere. And so that same message finds itself, really finds its origins in Daniel. Yes, sir? God wrote the Bible. He wrote it for 12,000 years plus. Now, I don't know how long that plus will be, but approximately 12,000 years plus. We can only look back. We might be able to look back to 1492. Ocean Blue. Ocean Blue. <laughs> yeah. Discovered America. And we don't want to look back any further. But his plan is for us throughout right now 2023 plus. Now, that plus will still be the plan for us. That's true. His, his word will endure. For all of it, what we must do. Yes, sir. God's his word, word will endure, and it is applicable to all generations. And so this language from these, these two books, it looks very similar. And this is the kind of apocalyptic writing we sort of talked about last week, and we said they write a lot about the end of the days. And if you think about it, again, if you put yourself in their shoes, when things seem to be going terribly, and if I'm the prophet Ezekiel or prophet Daniel... And the word that I'm getting from God is that, guess what? Things are going to continue to be terrible for most of the rest of your life, at least, for the next 50 years, for the next 70 years. You're probably going to have a hard time selling people on, hey, stay faithful, because for 49, 50 years, it's going to just continue to be terrible. Anybody feel encouraged by that message? <laughs> Not really. And so he says, you know what? God has told me something else. God has told me what is going to come after. And let me tell you something that is encouraging. Let me tell you something that will lift you up, that will motivate you to remain faithful even though all these horrible things seem to be going on. And so we, we did this a little bit with Ezekiel. I don't want to turn it into a class in Revelation, but sometimes it's easier to start with these books that came first and understand why John is writing what he wrote. So um, questions, or questions, comments on anything we've talked about in Daniel so far? We're going to look at a couple more themes and things like that, but I just wanted to, we're about 20 minutes in, I just wanted to pause if, all right, cool. So God's sovereignty, God's power, God's control, faithfulness, even though nobody is really listening. And then a big one, we talked about this in Ezekiel. We've talked about this in just about every biblical book since it has happened. But of course, this, this historical event of the exile looms large in Daniel just like it did with Ezekiel. Because the people of Judah could have, and at least certain, some of them certainly did, uh, interpret this as the end of their special relationship with God. They said, well, God has destroyed the city. God has destroyed the temple. And if you think about how closely they knew God, when that happens, they say, well, then certainly God has abandoned us. And if God has abandoned us, then we don't need to worship God. We don't need to serve God. This must mean that God isn't real and God isn't in control or this wouldn't have happened. And so the message, the thrust of Ezekiel and a big message in Daniel is that no, 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 no. Not only is God still in control, as we talked about, not only should you continue to remain faithful, as we talked about, but that actually, if you can believe this, 
God still has a special relationship with his people. And, and again, this is another one of those things without really putting ourselves in their shoes. The magnitude of this message will be lost on us a little bit. But he says, yes, it, it is possible. It is possible to remain faithful to God even though there's no temple. It is possible to remain faithful to God, even though there's no Jerusalem, even though we're not in the promised land, even though we're not in the land that he promised to Jacob, that he promised to Abraham, that he promised to our fathers, even though we have, and again, think about just the weight of that sort of generational uh, blessing, I guess you would say, that for generations their people have been in this land, and they were the generation that screwed it up. They were the generation that lost it. They were the generation that got driven out of the promised land that was given to the gods of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of their fathers and going back years and years and years. And they were the ones who, who kind of messed it up. And so I'm sure this, this weighs heavily on them. And so Daniel shows them that it's possible to remain faithful to God and that, that God has not quite abandoned them. He has not quite abandoned them. So it's possible to live a faithful life. It is possible to, to, to still understand the sovereignty, the power, and the control of God. On a practical message, we see a lot of just good lessons. We, we talked about these when we were going through the first half. But a lot of those lessons just are very practical. There's a reason we teach them to our kids, right? Like when we were going through this, you probably don't know. You, you probably have not taught your kids a lot about Ezekiel 10 or Ezekiel 37. Saying that God can bring skeletons out of the ground and make flesh and muscles grow on them. You're like, What? Why am I watching a Goosebumps book? But we teach them stuff like, hey, even when people pressure you to do stuff that God doesn't want you to do, even when they threaten you with punishments that seem really scary if you don't do what everybody's doing, if you don't do what seems cool, if you don't buy into this thing that's going on, that's okay. That's okay. God will remain faithful to you. God will vindicate those who are faithful to him. And of course, we read that... Uh, that verse when Nebuchadnezzar is threatening Daniel with the fiery furnace and he says, I believe that my God can deliver us. He says, but even if he doesn't, we will still not do this thing that you want us to do. And so the reason we teach that to kids is because we want people to believe that even when there's other influences, bad influences, when there's what we would really call propaganda working against you and what you believe, it's still possible to set your mind on serving the Lord. See, torment, persecution for those who do not obey, judgment, salvation for those who do. Let's look at Daniel 7.13. This is some of the reason we're jumping around a little bit and kind of talking about this second half thematically, more than necessarily just going through each chapter. Daniel 17, 13, and 14 have a big one. Someone read for us Daniel 7, verse 13 and verse 14. So, there's two phrases in there that find their earliest usage here in Daniel. And that is one like the son or a son of man and the ancient of days. Anybody heard the phrase son of man before? Michael says maybe. Jesus 
It's in the New Testament a lot. Um, Ancient of Days finds its way into a lot of our songs. Um, I don't believe this. I believe this originates with Daniel, not with Psalms and like some of our hymns and things like that. But one like the Son of Man becomes a very, very prominent phrase when we get into the New Testament because over and over, Jesus refers to himself kind of in the third person with this language. He says, then the Son of Man will come in his glory. Then the Son of Man will come in his angels. When the Son of Man comes... And the, the, the people, as, as you might know if you've studied the Gospels, there's a period of time where Jesus is preaching to the disciples, and the disciples just don't get it. <laughs> They're just totally lost. Go into a, a Bible study or church for the first time in a few weeks. Sometimes it's a little disorienting. Well, Jesus is speaking to them in ways that they have not been spoken to before. They're a little lost. And over and over, before it's really been revealed to them, Jesus refers to himself as this phrase, the Son of Man. And then finally, Peter makes that confession. They understand who he is. And that changes the dynamic a little bit. But that phrase finds its root here in Daniel 7.13. In Daniel 7, Daniel is speaking about this great thing that he is seeing uh, in, in this heavenly throne room scene. In fact, if you look back at verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. If you've read Matthew 25 or if you've read a little bit of Revelation, this is very much the, the throne room scene. right? The judgment scene. The, white, the great white throne judgment is sometimes called. Daniel is having a vision of this. And so we see that he is describing events that are happening in heaven, that are happening in the throne room of God. And in verse 13 he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, essentially saying, among all these crazy, incredible, fierce, all-powerful things, amidst the, the, the one whose voice roared like thunder, and amidst the one whose throne was great and shined, and the one who had everybody serving him, amongst all this, there came one like a son of man. And entire libraries have been written of people trying to figure out what exactly this means. Van spoiled it a little bit for me. But I would say that is the message I would agree with. Is that it emphasizes that in this great heavenly throne room scene that Daniel's been describing for about a chapter and a half. He sees something that in this context is unusual. And if we study Ezekiel, I can't decide which passage we're going to do yet. But if we study Ezekiel we'll see that God actually addresses the prophets quite often with this phrase, Son of Man. And God uses it in a way that seems to emphasize man's frailty, man's more, uh, mortality in relation to God. God is the one who lasts forever, and he says, You, Son of Man, Son of the dust, Son of the land. And in that context, it makes sense. Well, okay, God is speaking... God's going to make sure you know where you stand when you talk to God. But Daniel is describing this great, incredible, powerful, amazing throne room scene. And then he uses a phrase that is completely out of place in this context. Daniel's not describing a place where men belong. <laughs> I mean, have you caught on to that yet? He's talking about this is a throne of fiery flames. The clothing is as white as snow. The, the ancient of days is one who's so brilliant and powerful you can't even look at him. And he says, in the middle of all this is one like a son of man. 
He says, in the middle of all this, all this incredible beauty of this throne room of heaven, these things that I can't even fully grasp in my mind, they're so powerful, I see somebody who looks a lot like you and a lot like me. And I imagine to Daniel that was very perplexing. The text says, and he came to the Ancient of Days, saying the Son of Man came to the one Daniel calls the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When we first started hearing these verses, all the way back in, I believe it was 2 Samuel chapter 17, who did we say when God promises to David that I will, through your line, I will build an everlasting covenant and an everlasting kingdom and his kingdom will not be destroyed. Do you remember who we said all that language was about? About Jesus. Because he says, through David, I will, and, he, and he goes all the way back to David. And the, then a little bit later, we see it resurface in the kings, right? He tells Solomon, if you follow in the, the footsteps of your father David, I will continue through you. I will, through your line, I will build an everlasting covenant. The prophets speak about it. They say, well, this kingdom is going to pass away. And, and, and even the enemies who conquer us, their kingdom is going to pass away. But someday, someday there is going to come a kingdom that will not pass away. And so we've seen this phrase over and over and over, really from, I believe the earliest is in 2 Samuel, in what we would call that Davidic covenant but from 2 Samuel all the way to Daniel, we see this phrase used over and over by different prophets, by different people speaking on behalf of God. And Daniel says, I'm seeing this insane throne room scene, and there's this one guy who looks like almost, almost, because he doesn't say he is the son of man. He says there's this one guy who looks almost like a human. And to him, to this man who was in heaven, there was given the everlasting kingdom. The everlasting covenant, the, ever, the kingdom that will not pass away that we've been talking about for, to him it was given. And so it, to me, is quite sensible that later Jesus begins to speak of himself as the Son of Man. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when the Son of Man will sit on his throne, when the Son of Man does X, Y, and Z among the people, then the word of God will have been revealed, and this will be revealed, then it will be revealed to you. Because for generations and generations, we've been prophesying about the coming thing Jesus is going to do when he comes to the earth. And Daniel is just another voice in the long line of prophets trying to explain what's going on. And here Daniel has this powerful vision of the humanity of Jesus, but also the incredible divinity of Jesus. Because you and I could not stand in the throne room of God and just be hanging out. We, you'll notice he says when, when others, the other beings that are in the ancient of days throne room in verse 10, the other beings, what they're doing, they're not just hanging out with God. What are they doing? They are serving him. They're being judged. The books have been opened for them to be evaluated. They stood before him in judgment. But he says, no, there was this one guy, one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And so Daniel prophesies this great messianic vision that he will come in the clouds and he will have these distinctive traits of both humanity and divinity and he will be a part of that everlasting kingdom. And I would love to say I did this intentionally because that's just how wise of a teacher I am. But on 
our Sunday worship service, we've been studying. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is the earliest sermon that really seems to take off for Jesus. It's when Jesus goes viral, kids say. I don't even know if kids say that anymore. Um, and what does Jesus preach? What does it say? What does Matthew, someone read for us Matthew 4, 17. I know, it's all the way in the other part of your Bible. I'm sorry, I caught everybody off guard. From that time on, Jesus began to repent, preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And for three or four chapters, really for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you can underline how many times this phrase, kingdom of God, gets used. Because Matthew is trying to tell the Jews, he's trying to tell the Israelites, he's trying to tell the people who have these books that you and I have been studying, who have Ezekiel, who have Isaiah, who have Jeremiah, who have Daniel, that this thing that God has been prophesying literally almost since the beginning of talking to his people, for as long as any of you can remember, for as long as anybody's been writing it down, it's happening. It's, it, this is happening. This thing that God has been planning to do for thousands of years is happening in front of your very eyes. Which is why Jesus uses phrase like, He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. Something else you'll notice when you study the New Testament is anytime Jesus uses a phrase like that, what he's really saying is, in my opinion, it's almost like Jesus is saying, have you not read? And sometimes he says, have you not read? But it's his way of saying, go back and read. Go and find the scroll that I'm fulfilling right now. Because he's saying, I'm fulfilling a great prophecy and you're not even really paying attention. And so those prophecies find their origin here in Daniel. Questions, thoughts on all of that. It's a lot. It's really the story of about 60% of the Bible right there. All right. Cool. So we've talked about sovereignty, exile, messianic. Another big, I guess I say that because another big theme in Daniel is the messianic prophecies. Um, these lines are very short. They don't take up a lot of content relative to some of the other prophets. But as we've talked about, they were very impactful. The language of Daniel is something that carries on through the New Testament. So the exile is not the end. Let's, let's look at Daniel 9. Let's look at Daniel 9. And someone... <clears throat> trying to think if i got time to explain this. Look at verse 24 through 27. Uh, we're not gonna, I'm not going to read it. It's about a good lengthy paragraph. In Daniel uh, 7, I'm sorry, Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is called the prophecy of 70 weeks. And without getting, taking up half of the next uh, worship service, Daniel prophecies that a certain amount of time certain things will happen. And this is very rooted in what is going to, what he's prophesying about is what's going to happen between Daniel, between Malachi and Matthew. And that's the best way I could explain it. Between Malachi and Matthew is about 400 years. And this prophecy of 70 weeks is really this prophecy of about 490 years. Um, seven, 70 weeks is 490 days. Daniel's talking about a period of 490 years. And he's essentially talking about this period from the prophecy of God ceases to when the one 
who is anointed will come. And that's what I want you to see is that in verse 25, he says, Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word, the going out of the word, to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat. It's talking about how they're going to rebuild the temple, but in a troubled time, which is what they do. They rebuild the temple. But if you know anything about this period of history, there's a lot of rebellions. There's a lot of revolts. There's no stability ever. How we talked about there was the United Kingdom under David and Solomon. There's no stability in this, in this geographic location, really, again, until the time of Jesus when the Romans just take everything over. And so he says, in a troubled time, and then after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's a lot, and this is why I debated even getting into this with, uh, with the time we have left. But I, I highlight this just to point out that this is another prophecy of Daniel that is fulfilled in the history. Sorry. It's fulfilled in the history that takes place between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it is also fulfilled in the events of what happens in the New Testament when Jesus comes, when Jesus is the anointed one. And of course, he says, the anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. I believe that is a reference to the crucifixion, to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But Daniel is speaking about the temple, and he says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This verse here, if you know about Matthew 25, Jesus uses this phrase, the abomination and the desolation. He says, the one will sit in this throne, the one will sit in this place. 30 years, roughly, about 30 years after Jesus, the Romans kind of just got tired of the Jewish people and all their stuff going on. Because the Romans, they're this great empire, they're just trying to keep the peace. They're just trying to make a lot of money for themselves, grow the state. The Jews have been really rebellious. This guy named Jesus that we had to put to death is causing a lot of problems. His followers are going a little wild. And so about 30 years after Jesus, the Romans say, we're getting pretty tired of this. And so they show up and they just raise the temple. They raise the holy lands. And they say, we've had enough. Cut it out. Quit rebelling. Quit trying to get in your little fights because we don't care. We just don't like that you're disturbing the peace. But most importantly, the Romans destroy the temple. That is what Jesus prophesies in Matthew 25. I believe, I would argue that it is what Daniel is prophesying here in Daniel 9, verse 24 through 27. Because, again, remember the temple. It's the hub of everything in their society. It's the center of all it went. He says the temple will be rebuilt, but then the anointed one will come, and the people of the anointed one at that time, it will again be destroyed. Um, we don't even, there's no point in me asking you if you have questions, because you probably do. We'll pick up there next week. And then next week, I believe, we'll go to, we'll jump to Jeremiah, and we'll look at Jeremiah 19 through 21, uh, which is a totally different passage in the prophets that, don't worry, it has nothing to do with the end of times. We're not going to talk anymore about Revelation when we look at Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah will be a nice, I think, easy passage to apply to today. So, uh, thank you guys. We'll finish this up some more next week. That's true. They're going back and bringing it up. Oh, yeah. There's never enough books written about the end times. You've got to read all the scripture from the Bible. That's true. That is true.